This morning we continue in Hebrews chapter 10, this time considering just a few verses from verse 19 through verse 25, a little paragraph. The, 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 the letter changes here at Hebrews 10, 19. It's been a lot of doctrine, a lot of um, teaching about the superiority of Christ and why that matters and encouragement to consider Jesus and also encouragement not to fall away. Um, but then based on this, based on these truths, now the author is going to apply these truths for us, and he begins doing that here in verse 19. I hope to cover the rest of the chapter in three sermons. 26 to 31 is another warning, another warning that we have to take seriously, of course, and then encouragement again from 32 to the end of the chapter. But this morning, 19 to 25, things kind of hinge on these verses, so we'll consider them separately this morning. Hebrews 10, 19 to 25, let me read that for us. God's very own living word. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So ends this reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. Uh, let me pray for us as we come before it here this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before your word. <coughs> now we ask your blessing on this part of our service where we hear your word and seek to have it applied to our hearts and minds. May that be true here this morning. And may you fulfill your very own promise that when your word goes out, it does not return to you empty. Instead, it accomplishes everything for which you have sent it and is successful in everything for which you have sent it as well. For us, bless us, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us to open our eyes to see and our ears to hear all that you would have us see and hear from your word this morning. And in so doing, make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path so that we can walk according to everything that it teaches us. Father, as always, we ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Another of my little speculations or things I wonder about, and I wonder if some of you have wondered the same thing. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be an Old Testament priest? Have you ever wondered what it would be like to serve in the tabernacle or to serve in the temple of God. Now, parts of the job, let's be honest, are, are not that attractive. Killing animals, collecting their blood, burning their bodies, you know, those kinds of things that eh, aren't that attractive. But parts of it, parts of the job of the Old Testament priests, to be honest, seem almost glorious. To imagine, if you would, going inside the tabernacle or going inside the temple where hardly anybody else gets to go, seeing all the beautiful artistry 
that God had commanded them to include in there. Tending to the golden table, a golden table with the showbread on it. Or tending to the seven-branched lampstand, the menorah, and making sure the oil is there and the light is always lit. Or even if you're the high priest going inside the most holy place and looking at those grand cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant, all covered in gold, and in the very presence of God himself, the curtain that covers it with all of its fine art and decoration, it seems like an incredible thing to be able to do. And of course, there's not just the duties, there's the the privilege of being able to intercede before God on behalf of his people, to lead them in worship along with the Levites, to pray for the people, to instruct the people, to study the law, how to put it into practice and do so with the people of God. That last part seems a bit like an overlap to being a pastor, and I suppose it is, Uh, but if you think about it, interceding for others, praying for them, teaching, studying God's word, putting it into practice. Those aren't just my job. They're all of our jobs. We all do that. Which brings me to a couple passages that I think inform and put some context to our passage this morning. The first is from our Old Testament reading. I wanted to stop at Exodus 19.6 for that very reason. It makes a very interesting point as God is instructing Moses what to say to the people of God. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. So if you think about it, it's not just the descendants of Aaron who were supposed to be priests. Every single person in the people of Israel was to be part of a kingdom of priests. So there is that Levitical order, But nevertheless, in some sense, every citizen of Judah and Israel was to be a priest before God in some sense. And there's a New Testament text that is similar that you might have already thought of or crossed your mind. 1 Peter 2, verse 9, where he speaks to the people of God and says to us, You are a chosen race, just like the Israelites. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. What does it mean to be a royal priesthood? We are priests. We are part of a priesthood. All of us who believe in Christ Jesus. At least in part, it's another case of what was a shadow in the Old Testament becoming a reality in the New Testament. Because the people of God under Moses and under the Old Testament law (laughs) did not fulfill their calling to be a kingdom of priests. They were a hard-headed and stiff-necked people, and they rebelled against God time and time and time again. And so what Peter reminds us of, and what our author, I think, is telling us in this passage here in Hebrews 10 this morning, is both a reminder but also instruction in our new covenant calling to be a priesthood before God, obeying him, serving him. And that's, as Paul says in Romans 12, that is our reasonable service. Now these verses, Hebrews 10, 19 to 25, are one long sentence in Greek. It's kind of like the opening of Ephesians. 
one long sentence. It's meant to go together. It's meant to fit together. And it's meant to make a, a whole unified point. In one sense, the author reminds us of the things that he's been teaching us. But then he gives us a practical application that's a simple outline of the rest of the book. He talks about faith, hope, and love. Faith is the great topic of chapter 11, the great chapter on faith. Hope predominates, I think, many of the ideas of chapter 12. And then love is also in chapter 12 and a big part of chapter 13. Faith, hope, and love. Where have you heard that before, besides our New Testament reading? (laughs) Faith, hope, and love. The unity, the agreement of Scripture with itself. The sentence is a simple argument. Because this thing is true, is what the author is saying, then this also should be our response. Based on what God has done for us, he gives us exhortations on how we are to live. A common well-known, very familiar New Testament pattern. This is what God has done, therefore live like this. And that's what the author is doing in these verses. And I want to look at those two parts. The verses in 19 to 21, verses 19 to 21, which again summarizes what we've learned about Jesus Christ. It's a reminder of what we have, and it's the basis for the exhortations that follow in verses 22 to 25. And there are three of them. And they're interesting exhortations because they're not, you do this. They're not explicit commands like we often see, do this, don't do that. And it's, the you is implied or, or explicitly stated. Here, the exhortation is, let us. We need to do this together. It has the same force, if you will, of a command, but it's a mutual command. Let us do this together. Let us draw near in faith. Let us hold fast in hope. Let us consider how to love one another. We're called to be a royal priesthood. And this text provides us instruction on that calling, as I hope, Lord willing, we will see. So let's look at the first three verses, 19 to 21. Again, like I mentioned in the introduction, this is kind of a hinge for the book of Hebrews, a transition from what came before to what's going to come next, indicated by the therefore and the short summary that follows. As always, when you see the word therefore, look at what it's there for. (laughs) Uh, Look at what came before. And in this case, it's really the entire letter, the entire letter or sermon up to this point, with the author calling specific attention to Jesus as our great priest who's gone before us into God's presence. The author reminds us of what we have. Confidence, we have confidence, and we have a great priest. Having these two things is the basis for the exhortation that follows. So we have confidence, we have a great priest. Our confidence is given to us for a key purpose, a reason, and that is to enter into the holy places of God. We have confidence, says the author, based on what you've heard from me so far, you now should have confidence to enter into the holy places of God. Now, in the Old Testament, that's a duty reserved for the priests only, right? 
Only they could go into the tabernacle or temple. Now the author is saying, you get to do that. You get to go into the holy places of God. It's a privilege open to all of God's people. Now the Old Testament priests couldn't enter without blood. The blood of an animal, the blood of a sacrifice. As the author has taught us, neither do we. But the blood that admits us into the presence of God is not animals' blood. It's not our own blood. Think of some of the other false religions out there. But our blood is the blood of Jesus, offered 2,000 years ago as a final, once-for-all sacrifice for sin, once-for-all satisfying God's wrath, once-for-all bearing the punishment for sin to set us apart as the holy people of God. Again, in the Old Testament, only the high priest, and only once a year did the high priest go behind that curtain in the tabernacle or the temple. But now, the author is saying, we, all of the people of God, from the greatest to the least of us, have the right and have the confidence to have the right to enter into the very presence of God himself through the way that Jesus opened up for us. The curtain, the author says, of his flesh. Christ's death gains us access into God's presence, where Jesus is gone in the flesh as a forerunner ahead of us, ahead of his people. Again, this is all stuff we've heard before from Hebrews, going back to chapter 6 and even before. So based on that, we now have permission. We now have the liberty. We now have the freedom to follow on behind Jesus into the very presence of God without restriction. The other thing we have, of course, is a great priest over over the house of God, and that is Jesus himself. The author draws our attention to him again in verse 21, as he's done over and over and over again in this book. He called us in chapter 3, verse 1, to consider Jesus. And the, and the, the sermon or the letter so far has offered up various ways to consider Jesus, going back to the very beginning. Jesus is one who speaks a better word than all the prophets that have come before. Jesus is the one about whom the Father says things he doesn't even say about angels. You are my son. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Jesus is the one to whom everything and everyone is subject to. He's the one who rules over all things. Consider this Jesus, a greater prophet than Moses. Consider this Jesus, one who offers true rest, unlike Moses or unlike Joshua or anyone who came before. Consider this Jesus, a great high priest, not like the Old Testament priests, but like this Melchizedek, a king of righteousness, a king of peace. Consider Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant. In fact, the mediator of the promised new covenant. As we've been looking at for some time now, consider Jesus as a greater sacrifice than any Old Testament sacrifice. One that accomplishes what it intends, the salvation of, the redemption of the people of God once and for all. That's why it only had to be offered once. Consider this Jesus, 
We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. We have Jesus himself. This Jesus, this Jesus that he's been talking about. We have a great priest who has done great things, and we have confidence in our priest, and we have faith, and great faith, and great confident faith in what he has done for us. Confidence in what we believe, confidence in who we believe, and what Christ has done is and ought to be a, a, a hallmark, a characteristic of any mature Christian. Now that confidence can, can waver from time to time. If and when it does, go back again and consider Jesus. Consider who he is. Consider what he has done. And gain your confidence. Gain it back. When you have that confidence, says the author, you have to consider the exhortations that follow in verses 22 to 25. Three exhortations. Again, mutual. Let us do these things. So here again is an example of, of Scripture bringing us together as the body of Christ. Um, like I've said before, Christianity is not a lone ranger religion. You can't do Christianity by yourself, at least not in a healthy, productive way. We're in this together. So again, a hallmark of, of mature faith, a characteristic of a mature Christian, is that we live in communion with one another. We live together. Now also, when the author says, let us do this, let us do that, he's not wishing for it to happen. He's not hoping that it will happen. He's not pleading with us that it will happen. This is a command expressed in that communal manner. Let us do this. So it's not optional. Those three things that I mentioned, faith, hope, and love. First in verse 22. Since we have these things, we have confidence, we have a high priest, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. So if we have confidence to enter the holy places of God, with confidence as well in our great priest, then let act on that confidence. Enter. Go in. Don't hesitate. Don't hold back. How do we do that? Because it's, it's easy to look back at the Old Testament priests and say, well, there was a tent, there was a, a temple, there was something physical that they could enter into. How do we do that as the New Testament royal priesthood of Christ? How do we enter into the presence of God? Well, we do it by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, poured out on us like he was not poured out on the Old Testament people of God. Think back to Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, who says that through Christ, both Jews and Gentiles have access to the Father in one spirit, the same Holy Spirit. And there's an idea in, in Paul in that chapter 2 that it's not just access, it's bold access. It's the little kid running into you know, the, the office of his, his, his mom or dad, whether they're the president of the company or not. No inhibition, no restraint, no holding back. Bold access to the presence of God. We have that in the Holy Spirit. We can draw near to God in the Spirit when we pray, when we worship. We're drawing near to God right now. The reading and hearing of God's Word. 
and many other ways in which we can utilize the power of the Holy Spirit to draw near to God. And we can do it in full assurance of faith, as the author says. <clears throat> draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Full assurance of the kinds of things the author's been talking about in this letter. Full assurance that they are accomplished for us, for me, for you, and for our salvation in Christ Jesus. Enter in with a clean conscience. You don't have to hesitate. You don't have to fall back. Well, I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm guilty before God. No, no, the author has made it clear. You're no longer guilty. By grace and through faith, your sins are forgiven. You're not guilty. You're forgiven. And that's utter. It's complete. It's without holding back at, in any way on God's part. And so our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There's an echo there of how the priests had to prepare themselves before going into God's presence, right? They had to be sprinkled with blood. They had to wash their bodies. They had to wash their clothes. They had to be prepared to go into God's presence. You have been prepared. You don't need to prepare. You have been prepared by the blood of Christ and the washing of your baptism. You are pure. You are clean. So not only do priests enter into God's presence, but they enter in in a certain way. So the author is pulling on some ideas that relate to priests, and that's why I think this applies to our understanding of ourselves as a royal priesthood. This is how priests behave. This is how priests operate. We go into the presence of God, and we go as Christians without hesitation because we are pure and clean, washed by the blood of Christ. So we are priests. We are a royal priesthood. Royal, I think, because... Our high priest is a priest like Melchizedek, a king. And again, we do this together. It's a let us. Not you do this. Let us do this. And let us do it together. So what does it mean? It means be bold. Be confident in your faith. Know what you believe. Know who you believe in. Know why you believe. Hold on to those beliefs with confidence and with boldness but also encourage one another in that confidence and in that boldness. Remind one another of all of these glorious and wonderful truths. And if you see someone slipping, if you see someone slipping in their boldness or in their confidence, remind them of these truths. Remind them to consider Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith. Remind them of our great priest. Remind them of his great sacrifice. Remind them that he is a great prophet and a great king. If it happens to be that you're the one who's faltering in your confidence, then seek out your brothers and sisters so that they can restore that confidence to you. This is a family thing. He's writing to brothers or brothers and sisters in verse 19. Brethren, come together as a family. If you need help, seek it out. If you can give help, give it. Not to seek it out. Not to offer it when it's needed. To absent yourself from the fellowship of the body is to deprive others of what we owe them. Either the ability to minister to them or the willingness to receive ministry from them. 
whatever that might be in, in according to the various gifts that we have. Draw near to God. Do it together. This is our priestly duty and our priestly privilege. <clears throat> the second exhortation is in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Now, we normally think of the word confession as something tied to creeds, confessions of faith, uh, that sort of thing. But here I think the confession is specific, specific to the hope that's referenced, the confession of our hope, our trust, our belief that God is a God who makes promises and fulfills those promises. The confession of our hope is our hope and our trust in the promises of God. Of course, we believe certain things that the Bible teaches. But in the end, Christianity is more than just a list of beliefs, a list of doctrines, a list of truths that we accept uh, or falsehoods that we reject. In the end, our faith has to be a hopeful faith because God has promised things to us. Eternal life, the new heavens and the new earth. He's promised judgment for all. He's promised us vengeance upon our enemies. We don't get to take vengeance because the Lord does it for us and many other things that go with those promises. So the author is calling us to an obligation. (laughs) We have an obligation to be hopeful people. Hope is not optional for the Christian. Just like drawing near to God is not optional. And the character of our hope should be without wavering, without doubt, a kind, again, of, of, of confidence and certainty and, and boldness in our hope. We are bold hopers. <laughs> Not because of who we are and what we can accomplish, but because of what God has done for us. And based on that, based on his faithfulness, we can be hopeful. The author puts it well. Hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Our God is a faithful, promise-keeping God. Now again, doubts are going to arise up. They do for everybody. Look around, think of all the Christians you know, the most holy, the most mature. I guarantee you, he or she has doubts. It's, It's natural, it's common. But what do we do? Well, again, we we do what the author has called us to do in this letter. Consider Jesus. Consider how the whole Old Testament system points to him and to his work. Promises him. Promises that he will come for us and for our salvation. Consider the promises that Jesus fulfills. The offspring of Eve, who will crush the serpent's head. The offspring of Abraham, through whom all the nations will be blessed. The prophet greater than Moses. The once for all sacrifice that those repetitive sacrifices required. The son of David who will sit on the throne forever and on and on and on. All the promises that are fulfilled in Christ. This is our faithful God. Consider also the many ways that God showed his faithfulness to his people time and time and time again protecting and preserving the lion in the seed of the woman when it was under attack, protecting and preserving Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, protecting and preserving his people by taking them to Egypt and preserving them and increasing their number, 
saving them out of Egypt when it had become a land of bondage and slavery, giving them the promised land, defeating their enemies time and time and time again, sending them the prophets to teach them his word and give them additional promises. So when we doubt, it's, it's another phrase I've used around here, go back to what you know. What do you know? You know what God has done. You see his faithfulness. You see the promises about Christ, and you see them fulfilled in Jesus. Do you doubt? Go back to those things, and let your doubt be taken care of. Do you see others doubt? Well, that's the medicine we give to them, too. Give them the medicine of the faithful teaching of what God, our faithful God, has done. So hope is not an individual thing. Again, we're not lone rangers here. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. (laughs) We're in this together. Do you doubt? Seek out someone to help you with your doubt. Do you see someone doubting? Help them. We can't do this alone. We have to do it together. And again, to absent ourselves from the fellowship is to deprive ourselves of ministry that we need or to deprive others of ministry that we can provide. This again is our priestly duty. The third exhortation in verses 24 to 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. The third exhortation. We had faith in the first, we have hope in the second, we have love in the third. Stir up one another to love and good works. This is an interesting term, stir up. It's not just, hey, you can do it. This is kind of getting in people's face. You need to do this. Encourage them positively where positive encouragement is needed, but where correction is needed, do that too. Provoke them is the idea here. Provoke them to love and good works. Get others fired up about loving one another and doing works of love. Confident faith, I believe, produces compassionate service. Loving one another, doing good works for one another and for our neighbors. Two emphases that go along with this in verse 25. Don't neglect to meet together, as has become the habit of some, he says, but instead encourage one another. Well, those two go together. (laughs) You can't encourage one another if you don't meet together. And apparently here already in Hebrews, in the first century of the church, the perennial problem that we face um, of some not availing themselves of the public worship of God and of the times to gather together as the people of God There's already people staying home. (laughs) There's no bedside Baptist, but they're already staying home. If you don't meet together, you can't encourage one another. You can't stir up one another to good works. So part of our priestly service, again, is to provoke one another positively where that works. Being a little tough where that is needed. Admonishing, correcting those who aren't zealous about love and good works can't do this by ourselves. We have to do it together. Too many of us spend too much time alone, 
too much time in our own house. It's become a hallmark of, of life in late 20th, early 21st century America. We used to hang out. We used to talk over the fence to our neighbors. Now we drive into our driveway and walk into our house and most of us don't even know who our neighbors are. <laughs> but we can't do that in the church. We have to be together. And so when he says, don't neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, this is both public worship, but also other times of meeting. Could be times of fellowship, could be a meal, could be a, a Bible study, could be prayer, could be times for mutual, or, or, uh, mutual praise or, or counsel. Again, these things aren't optional. The author is calling us to these as a, as a requirement on us. Let us do these things. So again, a sign of healthy Christianity is healthy fellowship. Don't neglect fellowship. Don't ne- neglect getting together because we all need it. It's a let us do this. And he provides a motivation at the end of verse 25. Be purposeful about these things. All the more purposeful as you see the day drawing near. Well, this is the day. This is the day of Christ. This is the day of judgment. This is the day of his second coming. This is the day of his separating sheep from goats. This is the day of the new heavens and the new earth, the ushering in of eternity. And the author is saying that day is drawing near. It is drawing near. It may be 2,000 years after he wrote these words, but the day is drawing near. We have to have that mindset as believers. And so he's exhorting the believers, keep your faith strong, keep your hope strong, keep your love strong and active, and do this together. Do it as the people of God. Do it as the body of Christ. A strong echo here of 1 Corinthians 13, I think. Faith, hope, and love. In the end, these three things remain. Faith and hope and love. The greatest is love. Do you love God? Do you love Jesus? Then let us together love each other and love our neighbors as well. Be bold in your faith, but also be compassionate in your service. Let me pray for us. (coughs) Our Father in heaven, we do want to have a bold faith. Help us to have confidence in the things that we believe and why we believe them. Help us to have confidence not in just a bunch of tenets of faith or, or list of truths that we believe in, but have confidence in the person of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, and all that he has accomplished and done for us. And in that confidence, help us to be people and help us to be these kind of people together and whatever form or shape that togetherness uh, manifests itself in, but help us together to be people of faith, people of hope, and people who love. We cannot do this in our own strength and in our own power. So once again, Father, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us to equip us, to enable us, to teach us, to guide us and lead us in being the people, the royal priesthood that you have called us to be. Father, we ask all of this in the precious and wonderful, matchless, superior name of Jesus Christ. Amen.